Every month I get to share a meal with our seniors ministry here at Chapel Hill. We call them Cornerstones, and every month the meal is delicious, and the portions are more than generous, and every month I have the same internal debate with myself. Should I eat everything that's on that plate, or should I think about my figure? Should I get the dessert, which is guaranteed to be amazing, or should I think about the few extra pounds that I have put on? And this month, the debate was heightened even more by the fact that our board of elders, our session, called us to a, uh, us elders and pastors to a day of fasting and prayer on the day of the Cornerstones dinner. So I had fasted and prayed all day long, and I was planning after sundown at the Cornerstones dinner to break that fast. So I was particularly hungry on this day. And so I consumed a large, huge plate of chicken and veggies and potatoes and salad and a bread roll with honey butter smeared all over it, woofed it all down, and yep, then I went and got dessert. A brownie with lemon sorbet. What a delicious combination. Why has no one ever fed that to me before? I'm going to do that again. And to say I was full after all that food would be an understatement. And after a day of fasting, I had satisfied every single one of my desires in one fell swoop. And I bore the consequences of my actions. In our session meeting that night, I was struggling to keep my eyes open as the postprandial fatigue kicked in and my body tried to digest all that food that was sitting so heavily in my stomach. And then to cap it all off, I was awoken throughout that night with the worst acid reflux I have ever had. It would be a true statement to say that I regret eating all that food. But if I were to tell you that next month I won't do the same again, that would be a lie. <laughs> and there's a difference between what we want and what we need. Am I right? In this instance, I needed to eat something. I've been fasting all day. But what I wanted was to eat everything. And I bore the consequences of satisfying my wants rather than just my needs. There's a difference between what we want and what we need. And today, we're going to see that this applies on an even greater scale than just the food that we eat. My name's Ellis. I am one of the pastors here at Chapel Hill. Welcome if this is your first time with us. Really glad that you're here. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're continuing our series through Luke's Gospel, one of the four accounts we have of Jesus's life. Last week, Pastor Mark recounted Jesus's miraculous healing of a centurion's servant, and then subsequently, Jesus goes on to raise a young man from the dead. Jesus's works to this point in Luke's Gospel have been truly incredible, but they weren't necessarily what some people thought Jesus needed to be doing. Many of you will remember John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin. John was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And John preached this fire and brimstone message, repent or die. He told people that the Messiah or the Christ, this long-awaited king, was going to come to Israel and he was going to come and clean house. 
said back in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel about the Messiah. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John said that the Christ, the Messiah, who he believed was Jesus, was going to bring fire and judgment on the world. And John had been sent by God to prepare the people for this coming judgment. And John went on to repeat uh, this repent or die message to King Herod. And obviously, it put John in jail. And as John is in jail, word comes to him of the works that Jesus is doing. And John has a question about it. And this is where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, there's one in the pew as well, you can grab it. We're in Luke 7. Uh, We're beginning in verse 18. It's going to be on the screens as well, so you can follow along. Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things. That's all the miraculous works that Jesus has been doing. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this question might seem a little bit surprising, coming from John. John had so clearly proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, or or the one who is to come. That's what he was talking about, the Christ. John had told everyone things like this. This is he of whom I spoke, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John clearly proclaimed that Jesus was the one they had all been waiting for. But now... He's not so sure. So he sent messengers to Jesus. He said, are you really the one that I preached about? Now, perhaps John was simply in a a low point in his life. He's in jail. He doesn't know if he's going to be released anytime soon. But I think there's something else going on. And in line with Jim Edwards, who's a retired professor from Whitworth, I think it's much more likely that John was puzzled why Jesus hadn't yet begun his works of judgment. Remember, John had preached that that Jesus was going to come, he was going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and he was going to burn the chaff. But all Jesus seemed to be going around doing was preaching good news and healing the sick. This didn't seem like the Jesus that John was expecting. And Jesus' response to John's messages really only compounds this for John. Here's what Luke records, verse 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered, Jesus answered them, the messengers from John, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me." Jesus, in effect, responds to John and says, yeah, I'm the one who is to come. Look at the works that I've been doing. And he proceeds in that hour to to heal many people and then go on to list all of the things that have happened as a result of his ministry. And this, in fact, mirrors many of the Old Testament prophecies that we have of the Christ, like this one in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the one who is to come. 
I'm doing exactly what you should expect me to be doing. But yet, I think that for John, Jesus wasn't doing exactly what he expected. And this brings us to the first of three wants and needs that I think we see in today's passage. And the first one is this. We want judgment, but we need mercy. John wanted Jesus to come in judgment. And rightly so. Many of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, about the Christ, speak of him coming in judgment. And Jesus will come in judgment one day when he comes again for that second time. He will enact justice and restore peace to this earth. But the first time Jesus came, 2,000 years ago, he came not in judgment, but in mercy. Why? Well, we might want judgment on our enemies, but we need mercy on ourselves. I'm sure by now you've all heard about, and many of you have likely seen, the brutal murder earlier this month by five police officers of a young man in Memphis named Tyre Nichols. On Friday when I saw the footage, and by the way, don't watch the footage unless you've really steeled yourself beforehand. When I saw that footage on Friday, I was furious. Immediately, I wanted justice for this man. I wanted judgment on the men that had done this to him. I'm pleased to see how quickly the legal system is acting. And yet, on the same day that I saw that video, I read these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I think every single one of us would admit to being angry with someone, to insulting someone, to calling someone a fool. And Jesus says, if you have done those things, you are liable to the same judgment as those five police officers. See, we want judgment. We want judgment on our enemies, but we need mercy on ourselves. The reality is that if Jesus were to have come that first time and brought judgment on others, then he would have had to bring judgment on us. We have all sinned and fallen short. We all deserve God's judgment. And that first time Jesus came, if he'd come in judgment, we'd have been chaffed for the fire. But thank God that Jesus came that first time in mercy. We wanted judgment, but what we needed was mercy. And Jesus came to bring it. And we so desperately, desperately need it. And we find the ultimate embodiment of that mercy on the cross. As Jesus stretched out his arms of love, he bore upon himself the judgment that we deserved. The just judge judged in our place. He bore the consequences of our sin, death, so that we might receive the consequences of his righteousness, life. 
John wanted judgment. But what we needed was mercy. We might want judgment on others, but what we need is mercy for ourselves. And thank God that in His mercy, He has saved us from the coming judgment. And all we need to do is receive that mercy. Jesus has already paid the price. He's already received the judgment on our behalf, and that mercy is there for us. So today, if you find a judgmental spirit within yourself, if you find unforgiveness in your heart, or if God is convicting you of any sin, then receive the mercy of Christ. It is there for you. It is a gift, and all you need do is receive it. Take hold of it. Believe it. It's yours. So that's the first of the three wants and needs in our passage. We want judgment, but we need mercy. The second is this. We want greatness, but we need grace. The goat. It's a term that many of us have become familiar with. Tiger Woods is the goat. Michael Jordan is the goat. Tom Brady is the goat. And if you don't know what it means, it's an acronym. Greatest of all time. G-O-A-T. Goat. Well, I'm here today to inform you all who've been wondering who is the goat that Jesus told us who it was 2,000 years ago. Let's take a read. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus tells us John is the goat. After John's messengers leave, he, he turns to the crowd, Jesus does, and he starts talking to them about John. He says to them, you didn't go out to see John because he was a pushover. You didn't go out to see John because he was a softy. You went out to see John because he was a prophet. And not just any prophet, but the prophet that Isaiah spoke about. The one who was going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. John is the goat, Jesus says. But then Jesus flips everything on its head, as he so often does. He says that even though John is the goat... Those who are in the kingdom of God are greater than him. Even the very least person who has entered into God's kingdom is greater than the greatest person who has been born of woman and not yet entered into God's kingdom. Let me demonstrate it this way. Imagine that this represents all of humanity. The very top, we, uh, we're going to rank humanity from the greatest, the goat, all the way down to the loat. Coin that one. Trademark it. And at the top, of course, if we were going to rank people, you know, we'd have John. Jesus told us. He's the goat. 
He's at the top. If we were to start to kind of pick some names and, and throw them up there, we'd probably put like Mother Teresa, maybe Gandhi would be up there, Queen Elizabeth II, obviously. I mean, come on. And then coming a little bit down, you know, we've got some great people who, who did fantastic works of art. You know, Shakespeare, wow, uh, Michelangelo, yeah, incredible contributions to society. And then, you know, below that, we'd put, like, you and me. We're, we're, we're in there, we're in the middle, we're in the mix. Like, we're not the greatest, but, but we're better than these people down below. Like that person at the office who always leaves their dirty dishes in the sink. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Or, or, or maybe that, that neighbor that we have that did that thing on our property that they shouldn't have done. Yeah, yeah. And then below that, we start to get a lot worse, you know. We start to get down to the, the, the Stalins, and, the, and, maybe, and maybe down here, the Lot, we might say, is Adolf Hitler. So imagine this is, this is everyone. These are just representative names, but, but they're ranked from the goat to the Lot. And I wonder, where would you if you were God, for a second, draw the line as to who gets into your kingdom and who gets excluded from your kingdom. I, I would hazard a guess that most of us would probably draw it like just below you and me. Maybe if we were feeling really generous, it was a good day, we were happy, we might draw it down here below our, our, our neighbor and that person at the office. But, but most of the time, let's be honest, we put it right below where you and me are on this chart. But you know what's the amazing thing about our God? When he decides who's in and who's out of his kingdom, he doesn't draw a horizontal line. He draws a vertical line right through the center of what we as humans would deem to be the greatest to the very least. We might aspire to greatness, but what we need is God's grace. And out of his grace, he has freely chosen us, not because we were great, not because we did anything special, but because he loves us. We want greatness, but we need God's grace. You know, even the goat isn't good enough on his own merits to enter God's kingdom. God's bar is, is too high, and we have fallen too far short, but God doesn't grade us on our greatness. God grades us on his grace. And when he pours out his grace upon us, we are born again. And we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. And when that takes place, we inherit greater riches and glory than anything that this world can offer. We enter into the joy of our master. We receive life eternal with every desire satisfied and every hurt and pain removed. We become greater than the goat. The very least of those who've been born again and are in God's kingdom is greater than the greatest of all those who have been born of women and are not in God's kingdom. Maybe you aspire to great things. Perhaps you've got an ambition to climb the ladder at your workplace or to grow your business so that it's a success 
to raise your kids or grandkids to be great citizens, to pass on your wealth to future generations. I think we all aspire to great things. I, I aspire to great things. But even if we want greatness, what we need is grace. The least in God's kingdom is greater than the greatest in man's kingdom. So we don't need to strive and grasp and trample on people as we seek to pursue greatness because you already have it through no merit of your own. You are already greater than the goat by God's grace. And so you can rest in Christ and in the work that he has done for us and in God's grace for you, his riches that are poured out upon you at Christ's expense. So first, Jesus says we want judgment, but we need mercy. Second, he says we want greatness, but we need grace. And third, he goes on to say we want our way, but we need God's way. For almost 50 years, Burger King's tagline was, have it your way. One piece of their marketing said this, you have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special and tomorrow's, and the day after that. Now that tagline, have it your way, I think that expresses the heart of our individualistic, consumeristic Western society. We are brought up believing that it should not only be possible that we can choose to have something our way, but we have a right to have it my way. That's how our culture has conditioned us. But I don't know that that's anything new. Let's read the final few verses of our passage for today, starting in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, Jesus says, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Jesus says that we are like little kids that are whining because we don't get our own way. We say, we wanted you to dance, so we played the flute, but then you didn't do a little jig for us, so then we wanted you to cry, so we sang a sad song, but you didn't even cry for us. Jesus says, we want it our way, and we are not satisfied when things don't go our way. And then he goes on to share how the people alive at that time had done the very same thing with John and with Jesus. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus says the people who were alive at that time were saying things like, well, I don't know about this, John. He's a bit extreme, right? You know the guy eats locusts? Like, what's wrong with bread? <laughs> it works for everyone else, doesn't it? And he's never had a drink in his life. Not one, ever. I mean, what is this guy trying to prove? <laughs> he's crazy. They weren't satisfied with John. They weren't satisfied with John's ascetic lifestyle. 
withholding things from himself. And Jesus says they weren't satisfied with the opposite extreme either. They weren't satisfied with Jesus. They'd see things like, have you heard about this Jesus? All he seems to do is go around eating in other people's homes. And not people's homes that you want to be eating in. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. And you know what his first miracle was? Turning water into wine. And that was at the end of the party when everyone was already drunk. What a crazy guy. They weren't satisfied with John. They weren't satisfied with Jesus. They wanted things their way. We want things our way. And yet both John and Jesus, they wanted it God's way. John was called to a life of abstinence. When the angel appeared to his father, that was the words that were spoken, that John would live a life of abstinence, and John was faithful to that call. He went God's way. Jesus was called to a life of mission, to seeking and saving the lost, as we read about in Luke chapter 19, and Jesus lived his life according to that. That meant he had to be where those people were, the lost people were. He had to eat and drink with those people. John And Jesus both chose to have it God's way. And it didn't satisfy the people. But God's way, God's way is so much better. Jesus finishes by saying, wisdom is justified by all her children. This wise way of living that John and Jesus had is justified because of what they bore out of their lives. John bore thousands and thousands of people who repented and were saved. And Jesus has rescued billions of people from judgment. They lived God's way. It looked completely different in each of their lives, but for them, it was God's way for each of them. If they'd have lived the way we wanted them to live or the people at that time wanted them to live, that fruit wouldn't have come about. Those children that Jesus is speaking of wouldn't have been born but because they lived wisely, they lived God's way. That wisdom was justified by the fruit of their lives. What about you? Is there some situation in your life right now where your flesh is is saying, I want to go this way, but you know deep down that God's way would, would be a different way. A man shared with me about a business venture a contract that he'd been offered. It looked fantastic on paper. It was going to earn him a ton of money and be a great connection, but ethically, it was questionable. And he came to me and he said, what do you think I should do? And in my mind, I went, he already knows what he should do. (laughs) He's just seeing if the pastor will give him a get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) He knew that God's way was to say, I'm really sorry, but I can't do this. He knew that was God's way. Maybe you have a situation in your life like that right now, where you're being tempted to go one way, the way that you kind of want, that's going to satisfy some of those quick desires, meet some of those, those quick things that you're grasping for. But you know that God's way is so much better, and it's different, and it's harder It's a higher calling. 
You know, we've been called to something higher than the rest of the world. Jesus has, has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's rescued us from the world, and he's given us a purpose that is greater than the purpose that the rest of this world lives with. And he says to you, will you join me? Will you follow along the way? Will you go God's way? Let the others, let, let the world go their way. And don't care what they think about how you're living. They didn't like me. They didn't like John. That doesn't matter. Follow me. I love you. I have good things in store for you. Come after me. So which way are you going to go? Your way or God's way? What we want and what we need. These are two different things. And we need to distinguish between them. And in this passage, I think Jesus shows us three wants and needs that we need to distinguish between and divide between. We want judgment, but we need mercy. We want greatness, but we need grace. We want our way, but we need God's way. And I wonder if you've connected with one of those three in particular. If one of them is... As, as those words were, were being spoken, it was like the Holy Spirit came upon you and said, yes, that's, that's you today. You need that. Maybe, maybe you need to receive God's mercy today and allow God to judge others. Maybe you need to receive God's grace today and stop grasping to be the greatest because you already have it. You're greater than the goat in Christ. Or maybe you need to let go of your way and go God's way, trusting that his way is better. I wonder which of those three connected with you today. Whichever one of those three did, let's bring it to the Lord in prayer right now and offer it back to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in and through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, you've rescued us from the coming judgment. Thank you that he bore the consequences of our sin by his death upon the cross. We deserved to be on that cross, every single one of us, and yet, in the mercy of God, Jesus took that on our behalf. Lord, if there's anyone who's been convicted today of their sin, Maybe it's judgmentalism or unforgiveness or holding something against someone. Lord, I pray that they would release that to you and receive mercy today. And they would entrust you to be a just judge and bring about justice, whether that's through the cross or whether that's at the end of the age. Well, for those who've been grasping for greatness, who've been aspiring to things and have been perhaps making compromises along the way or, or treading on people because of their ambition. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your grace upon them, that they would know that they are already great in Christ, already greater than the goat in Christ. Would they rest in that? Would it set them free from the, the traps of the enemy that, that's trying to ensnare them in this world? And would they be, as a result, enabled to love those around them, to do good, and to trust that you have already made them great in Christ. 
finally, for those of us, Lord, who are struggling with wanting to go our way versus wanting to go your way, pray that you would make clear to those who are clouded what your way is. And if your way is to pause, I pray that, Lord, you would make that clear to them, that they, they would pause, they would not act. But if it's to act, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear, whether that's through your word or through prayer or through the counsel of their Christian brothers and sisters, through the compelling of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, Lord, make that very clear and then pour out your spirit upon them that they may be empowered to walk out their calling in a manner that's worthy of that call. That they would know God's way is higher. God's way is greater. And may they step out in faith and trust that even if the world thinks they look silly, that you delight in them. Give us boldness in the Spirit of Christ. Give us confidence. We trust in you, Jesus. We trust in your grace, in your mercy, and in your purposes and plans for us. And Lord, we devote ourselves to you now. We give ourselves to you. May your name be always on our lips. We pray in that name, the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Ascribe him worth and glory. You're worthy of it all. 